0: Welcome to the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Ilman. So today's episode is just a fantastic discussion about something that is understood to a certain extent I think by the general public and is very commonly discussed in the context of healthcare and nursing because of the kind of work that people do. So we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and in this conversation I was delighted to reconnect with my old doctoral supervisor Jennifer Wilde. Her and I conducted some research several years back that looked at a certain aspect of trauma and sleep and it was great to talk to her about the work that she has been doing around prevention of PTSD. So part of my mission is to enhance our understanding of an application of preventative mental health for nurses and Jen's body of research has looked into this and has developed some really practical tools that can be used. And we get into all of that today. So this episode will be really helpful for anyone who's interested to learn more about PTSD. People who may be experiencing trauma or have experienced trauma in their nursing careers. This episode will be really helpful for hospital staff, people who work in, in management, and people who work in well-being services within hospitals to really understand a little bit more about what are the recommendations for A, to help prevent PTSD, and B, also kind of what to do after nurses experience something traumatic or highly stressful. So without further ado, I bring you my guest for today, Associate Professor Jennifer Wilde. Welcome to the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast, hosted by me, Nathan Illman. This is the place where nurse and midwife well-being are at the top of the agenda. Each episode aims to help nurses and midwives around the world flourish through informative, inspiring and practical content and conversations. Great. So thanks, Jen, for joining me on the podcast today. We are here to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and some of your research. I'm really excited to get into this stuff. Just to begin with, would you mind introducing yourself and just telling the listeners what your current role is or what your new role is as well, perhaps? Yeah, just a little bit about your research background and maybe why you got into this research as well.
1: My name is Jennifer Wild, and I am an associate professor at the University of Oxford uh, with a program of research that focuses on preventing post-traumatic stress disorder uh, for high-risk occupations, like emergency workers, including frontline healthcare workers. I also have a role of professor of military mental health at the University of Melbourne, and that will primarily be focusing on preventing PTSD and developing programs to lead to early recovery from this disorder and other problems for military members for the Australian Defence Force.
0: Fantastic. Thanks. So we're going to talk about your programme of research today, looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. It might be helpful because obviously this term is something that it's in the the kind of public consciousness, isn't it? PTSD. But I think it can be helpful to actually define what we mean here, because I think sometimes people may use it for for things that we might not consider as actual post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. So do you want to just give us a definition of PTSD and what, what might cause PTSD?
1: So post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a crippling stress reaction, and it consists of a number of symptoms. And the core symptoms that drive all of the other clusters are what we call the re-experiencing symptoms. So these are the repetitive, unwanted, intrusive memories, the flashbacks, the nightmares. It's the brain in overdrive remembering and over-remembering the worst moments of somebody's trauma. And this cluster of symptoms drives the next cluster, which are the avoidant clusters. So this really refers, to people trying really hard not to think about what happened, avoiding reminders, avoiding places that remind them of what happened. And the memory symptoms drive the third cluster, which are called negative alterations in cognition and mood. And that really just refers to changes in the way we think about ourselves and the world. So people can start to feel quite unsafe in the world and think it's very dangerous. They might also blame themselves for what happened and think quite negatively about themselves. They might feel like they're permanently changed as a person and no longer the same person person. And then finally, the memory symptoms have a direct impact on the body. So when somebody might have a flashback, for example, or an unwanted memory or a bad dream, their body will be flooded with adrenaline and they'll have difficulty concentrating, they'll have difficulty sleeping, they'll feel very on edge, very hyper alert and feel unsafe. So those are the kind of four clusters and we diagnose PTSD if somebody has experienced what we call criterion A trauma. So this isn't about having a horrendous divorce or a very difficult move or being fired from your job, for example. It really is a traumatic event that involves threatened injury to yourself or somebody else or witnessing such an injury or threat to life or sexual assault or physical assault. The kind of really crippling traumatic events that we never want anyone to go through. So those kinds of trauma are linked with the possibility of developing PTSD. And once somebody has the PTSD symptoms, we then only diagnose if if those symptoms are actively interfering with somebody's life because they don't always. And we've certainly seen quite a few people work with a range of PTSD symptoms. Um, They seem to get by and they would say that those symptoms aren't necessarily impacting on their life. Um, But for most people who have a full array of PTSD symptoms, they genuinely are having a big impact on their life life. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks. And this is probably important for part of our discussion later around the chronicity of that diagnosis as well. So do you want to just talk about the difference between someone's initial reaction and sort of when, when you might diagnose PTSD, when it's appropriate to do that?
1: So when somebody goes through a really unpleasant traumatic event, it's normal in the aftermath to have unwanted memories about what happened. And for It to be difficult to sleep, for example, and you might not want to talk about what happened. You might push the memory out of mind. That's really normal and actually kind of to be expected in the first couple of weeks after trauma. If those kind of symptoms persist for more than four weeks, so they persist for more than a month and they're interfering with somebody's life, that's when we say that's post traumatic stress disorder. And uh, we really encourage treatment at that point because treatments are extremely effective for PTSD, and and it means that you'll have a faster recovery there is natural recovery with PTSD. So about 60% of people who develop PTSD will recover within about five years, but that's quite a long time to to have these symptoms. So we do encourage early treatment.
0: Yeah. I guess it's important to highlight, isn't it, before we carry on discussing this is that most people won't develop PTSD even after a stressful event. So there's a real natural resilience or tendency towards resilience that kind of protects us against that. It's a kind of smaller percentage of people. And then, like you say, even then some, people would actually go on to naturally recover from ptsd even though it might take several years
1: so that's exactly right the natural response is a resilient response and resilience can include some of those symptoms of ptsd it just is entirely normal for you to have memories of what happened after you've been through something horrible a small proportion of people go on to develop persistent ptsd
0: I think that's a really important message, isn't it, to come from any conversation about PTSD for, you know, if it's going to be nurses listening to this, is that if something recently has happened to you in your personal or professional life, or even in the past, you know, some of those symptoms, that can be quite normal to have that. It's just if it's lasted a longer time and there's more intensity and it's impacting your day-to-day functioning, then getting treatment is is really important and very effective, like you say. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, the treatment that, that you do and, and the treatments that you, I mean, you've obviously helped design some treatments as well, so why don't you tell us about that?
1: So uh the team that I work with we've developed a pr- which stands for Supporting Hospital and Paramedic Employees uh, During and After COVID. And this is a brief accessible intervention that nurses can access on their phone and they have a wellbeing coach and it's six sessions long. So it's one telephone call a week for up to six weeks. We have a 94% reliable recovery from post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's really, really quite high, very effective. And this is independent of whether or not the trauma was recent or it happened 10, 15 years ago. Program helps to teach tools that are extremely effective for reducing unwanted memories, for overcoming an unhelpful style of thinking called dwelling, which is when we overthink past events, and also for dealing with really low mood. So there is a tool that is really quite helpful for that as well. So what we see is really high rates of recovery from PTSD with this program It's 20 minutes a week. It's very what we call symptom driven in that each call will focus on the symptoms that the nurse might have want treatment for. And by the end of the call, they will have learned a tool that they can incorporate into the everyday life to deal with those symptoms.
0: It sounds really practical. So I'm, I'll probably ask you a little bit more about that as we go on, but I, I suppose it'd be helpful to think a little bit about some of the risk factors as we are kind of talking about before. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about that. So what are, the, what are the factors that might predispose someone to be more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder? I mean, obviously that could be where you work, so working as a nurse, for example, but can you just talk to us a little bit more about... Uh, about risk factors.
1: So um, risk factors uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder in the healthcare professions really boil down to uh, whether they're what we call fixed risk factors. Those are much more difficult to change and modifiable risk factors, which we change with training. So I'm really interested in the modifiable risk factors, and I will talk you through both of them. So the fixed risk factors are being women, increases the risk of developing PTSD. Another fixed risk factor is past history of mental health problems. And a modifiable factor is uh, dwelling about the past. So this is a really harmful way of thinking that uh, is a robust predictor of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now we conducted a study about 10 years ago where we looked at 500 frontline workers as they joined the service, and we followed them for two years. And then we were able to determine what predicted post-traumatic stress and what predicted depression when they joined the service by two-year follow-up. And it was really fascinating. So we controlled for previous mental health problems. We controlled for trauma exposure and gender And what we found that the most robust predictor of PTSD was what we call dwelling or rumination. So people who joined the service who were likely to dwell about the past were much more likely to develop an episode of PTSD. Once people had developed an episode of PTSD, they were much more likely to experience significant weight gain, clinically significant sleep problems, more time off work and poor quality. So then we developed a program to modify those predictors of PTSD, the ones that we could change. So dwelling is Something we can change, and that could explain why our program is very effective.
0: I really love that research, and it's it's so wonderful how you isolated that as something that predicts PTSD, and then you're just able to target it with such nice practical tools. I think what would be really helpful for listeners is to just dig into a little bit more detail around this so could you give us an example of a, a, a typical example of someone who dwells on things you know what where they might dwell what that what that kind of looks like or sounds like for them yeah just talk us about talk us through that and then we'll talk about the particular intervention that can help with the dwelling
1: Sure. So we all dwell. I should make that clear at the outset. It's a very common, uh, unpleasant form of thinking. And some of us are just better at disengaging from it than others. So a typical episode of dwelling might be if you go through a breakup, maybe your partner ends the relationship with you and this might have happened in the past and you start to think about, you know, why did they do that? why did they do it then just before my birthday? Why were they so inconsiderate? What is it about me that made them break up with me? Why can't I make my relationships last? Was that kind of thinking in relation to a kind of work event, something that we've seen quite commonly, might be where a patient dies and a nurse might overthink Their treatment of that patient and wonder and question whether or not they did enough to help them, why they couldn't offer more care under the circumstances. What if they had offered a different kind of medication that had been prescribed? Would that have been better? So it's that kind of over the what if or the why. I call it why thinking. It's when we typically think in whys, the kind of questions that don't have obvious answers. So when we're plagued with those kind of questions, they don't have obvious answers. And we keep thinking like that repetitively. That's what dwelling is.
0: And I mean, like you say, we all do this. I guess you know, I've, I've had this personal experience. I can just think of sometimes, you know, maybe you're doing work with a client and something doesn't go too well, and you're asking yourself, "Well, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why didn't I say that?" And it can often form in our mind is quite being self quite self-critical. Can't it? Um, and then kind of associated with negative emotions. I, I suppose something I'm really curious about, actually, is obviously the process, I suppose, if you like, is the dwelling or thinking about it. What's the relationship between that and perhaps, say, self-compassion, for example? Do we see that there's people who tend to dwell a lot have lower self-compassion? Do you, Is there any research that's demonstrated that?
1: I think that's a really excellent question, Nathan. I think a lot of the rumination is self-criticism, but it's also these open-ended questions which don't have an answer mm-hmm. So why did I do that or why was that the treatment plan? Why did the patient call out when they did? Why weren't their family there by their bedside? Right. It's those kind of questions that are really tough to answer. I think compassion is such a helpful treatment component and I and we use it when we're working with nurses and other healthcare professionals to we we want them to kind of build, for example, short breaks into their day. And on that five or seven minute break, do an activity where they're extending compassion to themselves. So we kind of use this idea that the compassion you extend to other people, let's experiment with extending that to yourself. So what would you say to a friend in this situation and holding that mindset or that mode of thinking in mind, what could you say to yourself instead of another type of thinking? It's not necessarily the way that we target dwelling. So we target dwelling in a kind of more systematic way, but we are continually working with compassion throughout each of the the phone calls, each of those um, six sessions that we have with nurses.
0: Fantastic. So let's um, talk a little bit about the way you work with the dwelling then? I mean, I suppose if you can outline just practical tips for people who are listening, if they're thinking, oh yeah, I'm someone who dwells on things, what could someone go off and do right now? What would be a helpful way for them to work on that dwelling?
1: I think the most important thing you can do is rec- a, recognize that it's there. So recognizing it involves identifying the kind of signs of dwelling. So if, if you've been thinking about the same thing for more than 30 minutes, it's there's a strong possibility you're dwelling. If you have questions running through your mind and there's no obvious answer, there's a strong possibility that you're dwelling. And if you're starting to feel quite low as a result of your thinking, strong possibility that that thinking is a form of dwelling. So once you can recognize that it's there, the best thing to do is to get out of your head so we need to shift our attention from our thinking to the outside world the easiest way to do that is exercise and you know that that just is if you start to exercise you end up focusing your attention on the exercise and that immediately interrupts that line of thought so that's all very well and good if it's the middle of the day but obviously a lot of the people that we work with say well I'm lying in bed at night <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and these thoughts come into my mind and that's when they notice that they're dwelling. So then what we would suggest is great that you can spot that you're dwelling. And now we have to shift your attention to something else. So that might be playing like Tetris on your phone, for example. It might be picturing an image in your mind's eye that's completely different to what you're, you've you been dwelling about. So it could be an image of a rose or sunshine, but really something to shift that attention out of your head. If you need to, if it's a really severe episode of dwelling, get up and just walk downstairs. Just the act of getting up will shift your attention out of your head. So that's what we would suggest. But when we're working with nurses, what we aim to do is prevent the episode from starting in the first place. And so that means we have to get really good at spotting our triggers for dwelling. And so we spend some time thinking about what are the likely situations that you're going to dwell in? What do you notice going on in your body? What sort of body sensations might trigger an episode of dwelling? What might might be related to dwelling maybe you're you're more tense what are the feelings that might be associated with dwelling that might be feeling overwhelmed for example feeling guilty feeling tired that might be linked to an episode of dwelling um what are the thoughts that might trigger an episode of dwelling and this is where self criticism comes in so you might find that you're thinking more negatively or you're thinking self critical thoughts and where's your focus of attention are you focused on the task at hand in the outside world or is your focus more internal on your thinking so we, we identify all of the triggers, and then we come up with an action plan. And this is based on Ed Watkins' work from the University of Exeter. So we come up with a plan, like if I spot XY trigger, then I will do XY action. That might be exercise or calling to mind to a positive image. Um, and we experiment with what works. And so by the end of our six sessions, people are really good at intervening at the level of triggers so that the rumination or the dwelling doesn't start in the first place.
0: That's fantastic and i I know those if then plans are really helpful aren't they i think just for in general if we want to change a behavior with anticipating barriers as well to something and if that happens then i'm going to do this that sounds fantastic i know from personal experience when you start to get people to notice patterns of thought as a sort of process and give it a label, it can quite immediately be empowering, can't it? We often Before you've had any of this kind of training, it's just everything's a bit of a jumble, isn't it? We don't really separate our thoughts out or different ways of thinking. And then once you start to be a keen detective and, and looking at your own thinking processes, people can get a lot of benefit out of just kind of giving something a label. So oh, I'm dwelling again. That's fantastic. And the this, this success rates are so encouraging with with your program.
1: I would say one of the kind of emotional states that we've noticed that can reinforce dwelling or kind of be related to triggering dwelling is guilt. So if someone feels quite guilty about something they really believe they should have prevented a death or they should have prevented a trauma, then that can increase the sense of guilt. And so what we do in that situation, whilst identifying triggers to dwelling and coming up with an action plan is also to shift the focus from what I didn't do to what I did do. So what did I do that was helpful? And it might not just be in the moments that have been going through their mind, but it might relate to the life of the person they're thinking about or the hospital stay, the whole hospital stay of the patient they treated. And so that's, important to just to share with you as well.
0: Broadening people's perspective on the event and their recollection of it. And yeah, that's fantastic. Something that I I mean we were talking about this before we started recording. And I think it'd be really important to just touch on even even if briefly is sleep because I know that I was looking at a research study the other day that was showing that poor sleep was then sort of um, predictive of people developing PTSD. And there's obviously an interaction between the sleep and other other things. So can you just comment on that? Just talk about the role of sleep beforehand, maybe for people who are experiencing insomnia or not sleeping well now, which is very common in nurses. And what happens with sleep after people have experienced something highly stressful?
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, the role of sleep in a lot of different mental health problems and there's been some conflicting research on sleep and i i will describe where um my thinking has landed mm-hmm. so there's been some studies that well there's been one study that said that sleeping so, so what that what they did in this study was they depra- they exposed people to trauma, not many, like 15 people, they exposed 15 people to trauma. And then they um, kept some of them awake and they let some of them sleep. And then they measured their unwanted memories of the next few days. And what they found was that the people who were allowed to stay awake and were encouraged to stay awake had fewer unwanted memories over the next three days. And then they concluded that therefore sleep deprivation interrupts memory consolidation and therefore reduces the frequency of unwanted memories. I think it's a bit of a premature conclusion. The the other study, very similar design, a few more people, and they exposed people to trauma, meaning that they showed traumatic film footage. And then they kept some awake and they let some of them sleep. And what they found was that the people who slept had fewer unwanted memories, meaning that their trauma memory was more consolidated and less likely to be easily triggered. And that's the camp that I think I'm more aligned with just based on the hundreds of clients that I've seen with PTSD. I would say that most people that I see don't actually sleep on the night of their trauma. It's very, very difficult when you go through something horrendous to dash home and have a really good night's sleep. Um, And they typically continue to have some sleep difficulties after their trauma exposure and lots of unwanted memories and difficulty accessing information in their memory that could help to update the trauma. So I think from my perspective, sleep is really, really important for memory consolidation, very important for emotional memory consolidation and very important in enabling us to access parts of our memory that can help to dampen down the trauma response. So we wanna make sure that if we're in a stressful occupation we actually are getting good night's sleep and of course that's tricky when you have shift work so we look at sleep we don't and we you know we will give kind of basic pointers on how to improve sleep in the program but we don't have a specific sleep intervention. What we find uh, in our research is that helping people to reduce unwanted memories, then we see an improvement in sleep. So once we can help the memory to settle, then sleep typically improves. And I think we've published a study on that a few years ago.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. Um, So I'd like to just talk about the role of organizations and, and what they are doing to help and support their staff. So there's a big literature on critical incident stress debriefing and I think it's an umbrella term, psychological debriefing, which is basically providing some immediate uh, support to people after they've witnessed or experienced something traumatic. Do you want to just talk a little bit about about what that is and comment on its effectiveness and where we're sort of yeah where where we're at with the research on that and and whether or not it's actually something that should be offered to nurses or other healthcare staff.
1: Yeah. So critical incident stress debriefing or CISD is a single session group intervention where people who have been exposed to the same trauma are gathered together and they hear about other people's experiences of that trauma and research that my teams conducted, um, not me specifically, but one of my collaborators found that CISD interrupts the natural recovery from PTSD. And we think that's because... People are vicariously traumatized by hearing about other people's perspectives of the trauma so they can have a more severe perspective or uh, experience details that the person who also went through it, who's in the group hadn't thought of or hadn't heard of. And so it interrupts the natural course of recovery. So Anka Ehlers uh, conducted research where she found that if you have really high symptoms of PTSD, kind of in the immediate aftermath of trauma or low and low, and other people had low symptoms, the CISD was unhelpful actually harmful to the people with high symptoms. So they had zero change in their symptoms over time. Whereas the people who had high symptoms, but didn't have CISD had natural recovery, were more likely to have natural recovery. And people with low symptoms of PTSD who had nothing or who had CISD kind of performed the same. So it's not harmful if you don't have many symptoms, but it is harmful if you have a lot of symptoms in the immediate aftermath. And a study that came out in, uh, I think, 2001, in the Lancet, which was a meta-analysis of all studies of CISD, concluded that at best, it's neutral, and at worst, it's harmful. So it's not something that we recommend. CISD Is a form of psychological debriefing. There are many different types of forms. And we have to remember that psychological debriefing is different to occupational debriefing. So, of course, if there's an event at work with a patient, there would be an occupational debrief around that to better understand what happened and to learn from any mistakes that may have been made. That's not psychological debriefing. There are many forms of psychological debriefing. And I am most familiar with the CISD, the nice guidelines do not recommend CISD as an intervention for PTSD or as a preventative intervention. And what is recommended in the immediate aftermath. So if somebody does go through trauma and they have really severe PTSD symptoms within a week or so, the uh, guidance is to offer individual treatment immediately. So don't wait for a month, but actually you can offer individual treatment because the the symptoms can be very distressing.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess my understanding of the literature is that obviously, like you said, providing that kind of occupational debriefing is important and, and really relevant. Basically, after someone's witnessed something, not getting or not forcing them to, to recount in explicit, like lengthy detail exactly what happened, people shouldn't be aiming to do that. I think it's offering... Social support is really important, isn't it? So that social support can come from colleagues. You know, hopefully, hopefully you'd have a supportive supervisor, team leader, matron or whatever in that hospital setting or other other setting where they can ask you, are you okay? How are you doing? And ask them, you know, what do you need? Rather than sitting people down and saying, right, everyone tell us what happened. Tell us exactly the emotions that you're feeling. So it's, it's a bit, I suppose it's a bit more informal, right? That, like, That's probably what's going to help most.
1: I think in the immediate aftermath of trauma, Trauma, kindness goes a long way. So I think just taking a moment to think about what you need and what you need in different um, situations. So what you need at work, what you need at home, what you might need from your friends and having a go at communicating that will most support your recovery. So not avoiding friends, but you might reach out to them and say, maybe you have to reduce your social engagements or, you know, go out um, with some, you know, letting your friends know some awareness that they, you know, just to ask you how you are, or, you know, sometimes people get really clear that they need help cooking, or they'd like somebody to come around and cook for them or something like that. So being able to communicate your needs and kindness at work really does go a long way. And, And when people do have supportive work environments or colleagues who have made them a cup of tea, it really does feel like they're being supported. And that means the world to them. And I think does support recovery.
0: It comes back to that idea of compassion, doesn't it? I think compassion for others, actually just looking someone in the eye, giving them the time to ask if they're okay, offering to make a cup of tea, that small act could be really instrumental in that person's experience after that highly stressful event. I I spoke to a nurse not long ago, a few months ago, who told me about an experience which stuck with her. And I'm not sure whether it was PTSD. I wasn't sort of assessing her or anything. It was just an informal conversation. But she talked about very early on in her career, a situation that happened in a neonatal unit where a baby died and it was... Something had gone wrong and she was very junior. She felt very guilty about it. And immediately after, what happened was like an occupational debriefing, but one in which one which was done in quite a cold kind of way that was almost looking to point blame, basically. So it was what happened why wasn't that person there and th- th- this person didn't receive any of that kind of compassion the person didn't empathise and acknowledge Well, oh, this is a student on placement or very junior early in their career and she said to me oh, I felt that all I needed was for my, my supervisor manager just to say are you okay? This isn't your fault individually and she, but instead that happened and she said it, it just troubled her for years, it affected the way she interacted with her own kids and things So um, yeah it's it, it just shows that people listening to this if you're in a leadership position just giving people even a few minutes is really important isn't it
1: it means a lot to them and can help them to feel really supported and social support is one of the predictors of recovery
0: yes yeah absolutely so we'll finish up in a moment Jen before we go it'd be good just to hear about so your future directions with this kind of research what you hope to look at what you hope to find what are the programs you're going to be working on
1: So I plan to take this to the Australian military. I'm very passionate about preventing difficulties that are preventable. So I think PTSD is a preventable condition. We know what the predictors are. I've been able to demonstrate that we can prevent it in some occupations. So I'd like to prevent it in the broader at-risk occupations like the military. Uh, I think early promoting early recovery is really important as well. I think it, in our study that we published recently in the British Journal of Clinical Psychology, our nurses who had PTSD had actually had it for quite some time really long time. And that's difficult. It's it's reducing quality of life for years and years, and it is a treatable condition. So I think earlier detection and intervention is something that I'm keen to promote and develop programs for. And then a better understanding of who's going to become unwell over time. So we have a pretty clear understanding in some occupations, but I think there's more work to be done and there's a lot of data out there. And it's important that we utilize what we have access to, to develop algorithms algorithms to improve personalized prediction
0: yeah it's a really important area of research and i yeah i just love how focused you are on, on prevention it's it's great to see well i want to thank you very much for your time and it's, i really enjoyed this discussion i was looking forward to reconnecting with you and um yeah thanks for all the work that you're doing i'm sure but i know it's been helping probably thousands of people here so thanks nick
1: and thanks for inviting me